0: Hi folks, this is Kean here and you're very welcome to this probably short bonus episode. It's a bonus episode because uh, I was recently on a short camping trip with a friend and a little something happened which put this particular story into my head and I just thought since I had a bit of extra time this week, I might make a short episode about it. What happened was I was camping with a friend of the show, Chris Joyce, And we woke up one morning in the tents and he stuck his head out and he saw me making coffee and the campfire and he said, just offhandedly, well this makes me think about being a prospector in the Old West. And something about that, combined with the research I had been doing about lake monsters for one of our more recent episodes, put a very strange story into my head and it is a type of weird western from the very end of the 19th century. And that's what we're talking about today. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the cabin in the woods, somewhere in Wild West Cork, we investigate stories of the strange from history. We do our best to get right back to the original uh, first-hand material to find out what really happened. Uh, I like to think that we're always critical, but never cynical about the stories that we cover. My drink for this episode is a Howling Gale beer from 8 Ball Brewing and they are based out of Mitchellstown, County Cork and it is very refreshing indeed. Now, if you're interested in learning about strange stories from the history of the American Wild West, if you're intrigued by the notion of a talking elasmosaur, if you're into the history of cryptozoology in fiction, if you like Victorian mad scientist, then get yourself a drink and get ready for this episode cryptids in classic fiction, the monster of Lake Lemetri. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, folks, so it's not a secret that I'm a fan of cryptozoological themes, stories about strange animals in the history of fiction. I've done a few episodes previously uh, in a series that I sometimes call cryptids in classic fiction. Uh, So, for example, we did the horror horn, uh, which was about sort of like yeti-type creatures featuring in in the Alps. And we also did an episode called The Seed from the Sepulcher, which is a short story from the 1930s about sort of cryptobotany, I suppose, some sort of man-eating plant or or fungus. Now, previously, I've read out entire stories. And if that's something that you've been enjoying, I haven't done it recently, but if you like it, let me know because I'm going to do it a little bit differently this time. I'm just going to read sections out of it, and just kind of talk around it, and do a little bit of my usual analysis. If you do enjoy the fully narrated short stories, uh, let me know. So over on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland, and on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And uh, yeah, just tell me if you like some of that, you like some more of it. At the moment, I don't think I'm going to do more of it unless I hear that people enjoy it. Just because. It can be a little bit drier to to record, uh, and I do like to add my own sort of slant on things anyway. There are some really good podcasts out there already who do rereadings of classic stories. Uh, Hypnagoria is probably the best one. I'm sure if you're listening to me, you're listening to Mr. Jim Moon over at Hypnagoria. I'll put a link in the show notes anyway, just in case. But I feel like there's probably enough people doing that in a really good way already online, so maybe I don't need to be adding to the noise so that this story the monster of lake lemetri it's written by a fellow by the name of warden alan curtis it was published in 1899 in pearson's magazine with a rather astonishingly large number of really good illustrations uh, you know considering how short the story is done by a fellow called stanley l wood and um, the writer curtis was a fellow from new mexico and I I don't know a whole lot else about him. I will say that I came across this story by a slightly unusual provenance many years ago, which is that when I was in university, I was a huge fan of Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I was going through a huge fascination with the Victorian period. And of course, the the, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in its earliest edition is about like almost like a superhero team from the 1890s and they're all characters from Victorian fantastic fiction. So you've got Mr. Hyde, and you've got Mina from Dracula, and you've got the Invisible Man from Wells' Invisible Man, that sort of thing. But later on, Alan Moore kind of expands this whole universe to include just about everything from the history of strange fiction, including TV, radio, serials, anything, anything he can really think of. And one of the, I think, one of the volumes contains... a a collected set of what what Alan Moore calls the New Traveller's Almanac. And within the chronology of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, what's happening is some of the characters from the story are travelling around the world and writing a sort of a travelogue of all the places they go. And of course, all the places they go are like shout-outs and references to other places and and things from the history of weird fiction and alan moore never uses the names outright so you kind of have to read through it and kind of guess what exactly he's referring to and at one point they're traveling in the american uh, west and they mention that somewhere in wyoming there is a lake that has a monster in it that can talk and sing and i and there's a great a great illustration by kevin kevin o'neill who does all the illustrations for the league and i had no idea what this was about it sounded really out there so i did some reading and probably almost certainly through the writing of jess nevins if you're an old old school fan of the league of extraordinary gentlemen you probably know jess nevins he did the extraordinary annotations for all the books he's also well known for his uh, fantastic victoriana book which is really hard to get a hold of now i would love to get a hold of it So that's where I came across this story via Alan Moore and Jess Nevins and I tracked it down and it is completely bonkers, completely out there. This is classic late Victorian weird fiction uh, with all of the trimmings. So let's get into the story. Our story starts with some narration by a fellow by the name of Dr. McLennigan and he's writing in a letter to someone called Professor Bray Fogel and he's giving him some, or, or rather, he's reading some selections from Dr. Mac- McLennigan's diary. And the the location and date is given as being Lake Lometri, Wyoming, in April of 1899. Now, I'm going to read a little bit from the beginning of the diary entries. Uh, Dr. McLennigan writes, "'Years and years ago I heard vague accounts of a strange high lake "'up in an almost inaccessible part of the mountains of Wyoming.'" Various incredible tales were related of it, such as that it was inhabited by creatures which elsewhere on the globe are found only as fossils of a long-vanished time. The lake and its surroundings are of volcanic origin, and not in the least strange thing about the lake is that it is subject to periodic disturbances which take the form of a mighty boiling in the centre, as if a tremendous artesian well were rushing up there from the bowels of the earth. The lake rises for a time, almost filling the the basin of black rocks in which it rests and then recedes, leaving on the shores mollusks and trunks of strange trees and bits of strange ferns which no longer grow, on the earth at least, and are to be seen elsewhere only in coal measures and beds of stone. And he who casts hook and line into the dusky waters may haul forth ganoid fishes completely covered with bony plates." All of this is described in the account written by Father Lemetri years ago, and he there advances the theory that the earth is hollow and that its interior is inhabited by the forms of plant and animal life which disappear from its surface years ago, and that the lake connects with this interior region. Syme's theory of polar orifices is well known to you. It is amply corroborated. I know that it is true now, though the great holes at the poles Through the great holes at the poles, the sun sends light and heat into the interior. This is great stuff, folks. So we have this lake which has some connection to the prehistoric inner world. So he mentions John Cleve Symes, Symes' theory of polar holes. Um, John Cleve Symes, of course, was a former American military guy who kind of came up with the modern concept of the hollow earth back in the 1820s he tried very hard to organize expeditions to go to the poles and get in and see what was within but he was kind of always stymied by for financial reasons and political reasons but interesting here right at the end of the 19th century this theory is still being is still being mentioned and, and it's mentioned in such a way kind of offhanded as if to say hey everyone knows about the hollow earth and the the holes of the poles just interesting that it's still seen as a commonplace thing at uh, this late in the in the century. Also, the idea that within would be like older forms of life, uh, like dinosaurs and stuff. Of course, is an incredibly common one. Uh, it Shows up in 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 the Russian novel Plutonia, which I think is the nineteen tens or nineteen twenties. So yeah, people are still using this idea, you know, decades after this story. So. The doctor is travelling in rural, mountainous Wyoming to find this lake. He's travelling with a young man by the name of Framingham, who is kind of poorly, sickly, and he's travelling sort of in the hopes that it will be good for his health. Maybe the mountain air will be good for his health, which is of course a very Victorian thing, very common to anyone who reads novels from that time. Um, They are doing a bit of fishing when they get to the lake and they the the doctor is convinced that he has found the place where the lake opens to the center of the earth and while they're there they have they observe the water rising with a big sort of a like a boiling in the center of the lake and they presume that this is one of those periodic eruptions that forces you know strange things from the center of the earth up to the surface and indeed it does seem that something large has come through a few days after the water goes back down again Dr. McLennigan is attacked by something, and before he's even able to describe what it is, he has uh, sliced the top of its head off with one of his medical knives, which doesn't sound like a realistic sequence of events, but there you go. Um, He then takes a look at exactly what he has killed, and he says, "'Here was the black log I had seen in the middle of the lake, "'a monstrous Elasmosaurus, "'and high above me, on the heap of rocks, lay the thing's head.' with its long jaws crowded with sabre-like teeth, and its enormous eyes as big as saucers. I wondered that it did not move, for I expected a series of convulsions, but no sound of a commotion was heard from the creature's body, which lay out of my sight on the other side of the rocks. I decided that my sudden cut had acted like a stunning blow, and produced a sort of coma, and fearing lest the beast should recover the use of its muscles before death fully took place, and in its agony, roll away into the deep water where I could not secure it, I hastily removed the brain entirely, performing the operation neatly, though with some trepidation, and restoring to the head the detached segment cut off by my machete. So there you go, some uh, Victorian mad science going on here. Our good old doctor decides to remove the brain. How- oh, he He then takes another look and describes the animal. So this is fairly close to what was known about Elasmosaurus at the time. He says, in length of body it is exactly 28 feet. In the widest part it is eight feet through laterally and is some six feet through from back to belly. Four great flippers, rudimentary arms and feet and an immensely long, sinuous, swan-like neck complete the creature's body. Its head is very small for the size of the body and is very round, and a pair of long jaws project in front, much like a duckbill's. Its skin is a leathery integument of a lustrous black, and its eyes are enormous hazel optics, with a soft, melancholy stare in their liquid depths. It is an Elasmosaurus, one of the largest of antediluvian animals. Whether of the same species as those whose bones have been discovered, I cannot say. Meanwhile, the younger fellow, Framingham, is is getting desperately sick. He is not getting better. In fact, it seems as though he may be dying. So, meanwhile, at the same time, the doctor looks at the animal and says, "I was astonished to find that its heart was still beating and that all the functions of the body, except thought, were being performed. One hour after the thing had received its death blow, but I knew that the hearts of sharks had been known to beat hours after being removed from the body, and that decapitated frogs live." and have all the powers of motion for weeks after their heads have been cut off. I removed the top of the head to look into it, and here another surprise awaited me, for the edges of the wound were granulating and preparing to heal. The colour of the interior of the skull was perfectly healthy and natural, there was no undue flow of blood, and there was every evidence that the animal intended to get well and live without a brain. Looking at the interior of the skull, I was struck by its resemblance to a human skull. In fact, it is, as nearly as I can judge, the size and shape of the brain pan of an ordinary man. Examining the brain itself, I found it to be the size of an ordinary human brain, and singularly like it in general contour. So you could probably guess where this might be going. At the beginning of the next section, uh, the doctor announces that he has already buried Framingham but then kind of mysteriously says, but perhaps the real Framingham is not dead. So it turns out that a little bit earlier before he starts this diary entry, Doc, uh, Framingham, who is he's on the way out, he's dying and he's kind, of, he's kind of feeling sorry for himself and he says, oh, if only I had the vitality of that animal. And then he grabs one of the knives and just cuts his own throat. And uh, Dr. McLennigan, of course, is a little bit shocked, but he's not too shocked to grab Framingham and say to him, can you blink your eyes? And uh, he does indeed blink his eyes. And this, of course, goes back to the old stuff about the French Revolution and the guys getting their heads cut off and then the scientists asking them if they can blink once or twice. And, you know, to see whether the brain uh, can survive death for at least a few moments. And the doctor decides this means, well, his body may be dead, but his brain is still good. So, sure enough, he puts the brain of the man into the brain of the animal, then puts the top back onto it and sews it up, and confidently announces, a new history in the era of the world begins here. Great stuff. It's post-Frankenstein by quite a bit, but it certainly echoes a lot of the later mad scientists that you'll see in movies of the 1940s and 50s. The animal starts breathing. Its body seems to be coming back to life. After several days go by, The doctor finds out that the animal is able to obey simple commands. He can raise his head and lower his head when asked to do so, thus implying that Framingham's brain inside the animal is actually functioning correctly. So the doctor says to him, Anyhow, you were rid of your human body and possessed of the powerful vital apparatus you so much envied its former owner. When you gain control of yourself, I wish you to find the communication between this lake and the underworld and conduct some exploration. Just think of the additions to geological knowledge you can make. I will write an account of your discovery, and the names of Framingham and McLennigan will be among those of the greatest geologists. Yeah, a little bit of Frankenstein here, you know, the the, the careless uh, scientist who doesn't really think about humans or or ethics, and is just willing to do whatever it takes because, you know, the, 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 the scientific search for knowledge is the highest um, benchmark to shoot for. Strangely enough, uh, the animal starts singing, maybe just start practicing using its lungs, and it, it starts out singing Gregorian chants and uh, songs from old Greek plays. So I think we're supposed to imagine that this is a the high culture of the man whose brain has been put into the animal being put into effect the doctor pities his loneliness he thinks that this animal you know with with the mind of a man will forever be cut off from the rest of humanity he the animal says that he is scared of being captured and the the doctor's only comfort in this kind of sad and lonely situation is that hey well if anyone does capture you you know i'll just i'll just claim to be your keeper and i'll say that i tamed you and that's the only way that the animal can expect to have any humanity showed to it. Anyway, a year passes, and he spent the doctor spends his time uh, up at the lake by the side of the animal, and after about a year, in his diary, he writes, A change is certainly coming over my friend. A catastrophe threatens the absorption of the human intellect by the brute b- body. There are precedents for believing it possible. The human body has more influence over the mind than the mind has over the body. The invalid, delicate Framingham with refined mind is no more. In his stead is a roistering monster whose boisterous and commonplace conversation betrays a consistently growing coarseness of mind. No longer is he interested in my scientific investigations, but pronounces them all bosh. No longer is his conversation such as an educated man can enjoy, but slangy and diffuse iterations concerning the trivial happenings of our uneventful life. Where will it end? In the absorption of the human mind by the brute body? In the final triumph of matter over mind and the degradation of the most mundane force and the extinction of the celestial spark? Then indeed will Edward Framingham be dead, and over the grave of his human body can I fittingly erect a headstone, and then my vigil in this valley will be over. We then cut to another piece of correspondence, This time it is a captain from the US military, also writing to Professor Greyfogle. He tells a story that he was chasing Indians in Wyoming in some wild remote area. When he wanders uh, through the mountains and comes across the very same lake that we've been at before, he sees the monstrous animal savaging a man. He seems to be eating a human right in front of them. Of course, the captain calls upon his soldiers to open fire upon this beast with their howitzers but he swears that just before it dies it laughs and babbles like a drunk man. The notes that we've just heard turn out to have come from a diary that the captain finds in the dead man's body, so it appears that the animal finally, or the it appears that Framingham finally went full animal and indeed murdered his erstwhile friend. And that brings to an end the monster of Lake Metrie. I just have a few small notes to make about this one really. Um, The Elasmosaurus, uh, in case you're not up on your paleo stuff is a type of plesiosaur. I think it's a genus of plesiosaur that was discovered in, I think, Kansas in about 10 years or maybe twenty, more like 1860s, 1870s during the Bone Wars with uh, Charles Anithio Marsh and uh, Edward Drinker Cope where those two guys are out in the Wild West feuding over who could find more dinosaur fossils and turning their whole uh, armies of workers against each other. A really, really interesting story, but might have to wait for another day. So yeah, the, the Elasmosaurus was a well-known uh, prehistoric animal associated with America, associated with the Wild West, and the Victorians in general absolutely had an obsession with dinosaurs. And I found some really good writing on this. I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it from the John Guy Colic uh, blog. And he's, he is writing about this very story, The Monster of Lake Lemetri. He says, The Victorians were fascinated by dinosaurs for a whole host of reasons, often obscured by the Darwin versus church debate that dominated the latter end of the century. Antediluvian creatures held a powerful resonance for a number of reasons. And he has three reasons. He says, Number one, They introduced a vast timescale into the order of things. No longer did history consist of 6,000 years dominated by human civilization. History was now a deep abyss of eternity against which human struggle was tiny and insignificant. In this new order, God was conspicuously absent. Number two, he says, dinosaurs were linked to humans by evolution. By implication, there was a bit of dinosaur in everyone, a primordial beast waiting to spring forth. And number three, they reinforced the idea of evolution as a great chain of being on its side. It didn't take much effort to slot humans into this evolutionary ladder with white Europeans at the top and other races set at convenient points further down the scale. Essentially, the closer to the dinosaur Framingham becomes, the less, quote, refined and more, quote, working class his conversation becomes. And uh, yeah, John Geicolic is absolutely correct here. Anyone who reads a lot of Victorian literature will have picked up on the obsession, especially in fantastic literature, the absolute obsession with evolution as justifying their worldview, placing people of different kinds in different orders and placing people of different classes in different orders too. And there is more than a shade of that in this story as Framingham becomes more... Uh, firstly, less like uh, he's less uh, upper class, and then finally more animalistic until he becomes, in fact, a uh, um, a human-eating, brainless monster. And that's where we're going to leave it. Thank you very much for paying attention, folks. Hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, We will have our next full-length episode this Wednesday. It's going to be all about time slips. And coming on the show to talk with me about those is Faye Sewell from The Ghost Trail. So until then, thank you for listening. And as always, stay safe. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.